Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Just when I start doubting the Clippers, they do it. Shorthanded, even Zubak. And so what? They got Paul George. And Paul George went off. He went off 41 points. He had the double-double. He got to the double-figure in rebounds. He had a massive game. The 20-point third quarter was sensational. And then Reggie Jackson gave him the juice in the fourth quarter, and they get it done. They win game five. Now, can they do that two more times? I have a hard time believing Paul George is going to go out there with some version of 40-10 and 10 in the next two games. And as they continue to lose guys, I don't know what other paths they have to victory. I, I think the Suns should still close this out. But this has been a weird, wild postseason, so everything's in play and there are no guarantees. The Suns should do it. I think they probably will do it, but can't slam the door on the Clippers. I think if you're a Jazz fan, the team you need to root for is Milwaukee. And there are lots of ties to lots of teams, and you can spin a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of stories, but Donovan Mitchell is awesome. And he is signed for the long term, so you know he'll be here for a few more years. Now, time flies, right? It's been 20 years plus since the statues went to the finals, so time flies, and nothing lasts forever, and he will be a free agent one day. And So Milwaukee has got the closest thing to a Utah story. If you want a story that says you can do it in Utah, you can win it all in Utah, you want Milwaukee to win it. I think Milwaukee is the closest comparison to Utah. And Antetokounmpo decided, I'm staying here. I, I did the rookie contract, and then I did my second contract, and I was a restricted free agent, so I really didn't have that many options. But I wanted to do a third contract. Milwaukee's the place. So if that pays off for him, what does that tell young players in their second contract about what they should do with their third contract? Stay where you are. Build it. There are failures. They are painful. You have to suffer, but you can learn from them, and you will eventually get there. So that message is out there in NBA history. But, you know, when you're 20-something, what some dude in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s remembers <laughs> doesn't do you any good. They need recent examples. So if it happens for Giannis now, I think that's a pretty good inspirational message right there and something that uh, the Donovan worlds, and not just Donovan, but any young player, you know, Devin Booker, whoever, uh, as, they dis- as they move through their rookie contract, their second contract, their third contract, whoever they are, That's a message. Hey, stay put. Grow it. The grass isn't always greener. Don't pick up and run. There's any guarantee it's going to work. Now, if Paul George gets it done with the Clippers, uh uh-oh, because obviously he wanted out of Indiana. All right. We'll get to all of that coming up. Uh, we got more on the way. But right now, let's talk a little NBA playoffs with uh, Shane Young. He uh, was on with PK and I late in yesterday's show. He writes for Forbes, covers the NBA. Here's Shane Young with PK and I. So the Suns win it all? I think the Bucks will probably have the upper hand there. Um, I, I, I like Milwaukee's size. I like Milwaukee's uh, shot creation with Chris Middleton right now. Uh, Middleton versus Booker in the mid range will be will be one of the best battles you'll see. Um, and and I mean just up and down the board through Holiday uh, against Chris. I mean two of the feistiest, best defensive point guards in the league. But I think Milwaukee would have the upper hand. So is Milwaukee finished off Atlanta in your mind? I mean, it's two one. Oh yeah. So, but it's well, over. I, 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 I do think it would be. 
I, you know, whenever Atlanta won game one, <laughs> I was telling everybody because we were in Phoenix, um, uh, you know, covering the covering that series, and I was just telling everybody, look, I think Milwaukee's going to win four straight. <laughs> I just think they're they're so good, and it, it takes one game, as we've seen in other series, particularly from the Clippers. It takes one game to kind of kind of get a feel on how you want to guard certain players, and Trey Young is that guy. And now with him having that ankle sprain, nah, it ain't it ain't looking good. So what's the difference with the Bucks from uh, last year to this year? Obviously, they got Drew Holiday. He's mm-hmm. a different player in terms of being in the lineup. Is that it, or is there more to it? Drew, there is more to it, but it but it always goes back to Drew because of how much they can switch. I don't think last year defensively you could switch Eric Bledsoe onto whoever and and live with the results. And then Bledsoe would obviously make his blunders, have his mistakes deep into the uh, most pivotal games, most pivotal pivotal moments uh, of the East Finals and, and, and such. And I think Drew Holiday, despite never really being on that stage before. You know, he's only made the second round, I believe, with um, with New Orleans. But, like, despite never being on this type of stage, he's just built for that moment. Like, I, I think Drew is a much better off-the-dribble uh, creator and shooter than Bledsoe was last year. I think he is a better spot-up guy, better decision-maker, um, and, uh, you know, maybe a better leader and teammate. And it's just like, I, you know, I think, I think that has mattered. That has changed the culture. And, you know, like, you have to actually give credit not, not a lot of people want to do want to do this, but you have to give credit to Mike Budenholzer for actually changing things up a little bit and saying, okay, we're not going to play our traditional defense of drop coverage. We're just going to switch a lot more. And that's made them dominant on both ends. Shane Young joining us, NBA analyst and columnist for Forbes Sports. It seems weird to be a coach. I mean, people have always think always think they know more than coach, and it's easier to blame the coach than it is to blame the star player, especially if you're a fan yeah. who has some type of – perceived self-perceived uh, emotional connection to the star players easier to dump on the coach but early you, you look at twitter which of course is a crazy thing to look at sometimes <laughs> but you look at twitter and ty Lue. oh he's being out coached by quinn snyder and then quinn snyder oh he's being out coached by ty Lue. doesn't it just come down to like sometimes you got better players than the other guy and if you switch coaches the same team would win and the other coach would look smarter dude you have read my mind you have taken the words out of my mouth with that because I don't understand. I've never understood assigning credit or assigning blame to, to coaches and, you know, saying they should lose their job for certain things. Like, there were even, you know, this is not representative of the jazz fan base. I, I think this was just a few jazz fans, I should say that. But like, there were people saying, like, should they have a coaching change? <laughs> just because, like, they, they lost in the second round to a really, really damn good team. And,. You know, it, it's it's always mind-boggling to me whenever people want to, as, as we said, either assign full blame or or give full credit to those coaches. You know, I think Phil Jackson is not another one. Like, does he deserve the full credit for what he did with Michael Jordan and, and Kobe and Shaq? Like, absolutely not. But it's uh, it, it's just it's a weird dynamic, as you said. And I think, you know, going back to your point there, if you if you put Ty Lue on the Jazz, like. I'm sorry, but he's not going to have a small ball center available to him. He doesn't. He's not going to be able to bring Nick Batum from the Clippers to the Jazz, right? Like I think. I think Rudy Gobert would still be stretched a little bit thin. And in that series, 
which I'm, I'm very disappointed. I didn't get to go back to Salt Lake City for Game 7 because I really loved it there. It, you know, for the three days I was there, that series went by so fast, I felt like. But um, I, I think with Rudy, like, you know, it, it wasn't an indictment on him what happened in that series either. It was more so like just the personnel. Like, they, they the Jazz had no uh, variation. They had no lineup flexibility. They could only go big with, with Gobert or Favors. Like, they just couldn't manufacture lineups that could either deter the Clippers from shooting lights out from three or or make it tough on them. So what do you think of the latest move that came down with Dennis Lindsay and the Jazz? More so from a, from an outside perspective, someone that's not in the market. I'm kind of just waiting to see how the dominoes fall. Like, I'm, I'm wondering why it happened. I'm wondering, like, you know, what, what's going to be – what's the impact actually going to be? Because a lot of, a lot of times you see like front office members uh, leaving their roles or, or going to a different, being assigned to a different role. And really like the, the long-term effect is you can't really put your finger on what the long-term effect is going to be. So I'm kind of just waiting to see how the dominoes fall. How how do you guys feel about it? Waiting to see how the dominoes fall. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you don't, you know, the whole personnel side, one person can't do it. You've got to scout guys internationally. You've got to scout pro guys. You've got to scout college guys. And so is it basically going to be the same team? Will there be small changes? Will there be a ton of changes? Um, you know, it, it isn't one person yeah. sitting up there with a magic wand. I mean, somebody's got to make the final decision, but there's so much that goes into the process leading up to the final decision. And sometimes you still just have to get lucky. You draft somebody yeah, who could have been good, who ends up injury prone, and you pass on a guy who stays healthy and ends up being really good. Yeah, and even going, kind of going on that point, going to trades too, like, like when it's trade season. I think fans kind of fall into this trap of thinking that it's just like one guy. So, like, you know, let's use like a – I don't know the 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 Celtics example. Like like it's not only Danny Ainge that is that is pulling the trigger and making those decisions. Like it, it's a team full of like twenty plus people that that's you know kind of like conversing on the subject and, and evaluating the players and and evaluating the long term short term effects of, of said trade. So you know it, it's not going to be just one one guy or one person uh, that that's kind of making the decisions. Right. I'm, as a fan, from the fan perspective, I'm more, way more interested in what is the decision rather than who's making the decision. And so is the decision right? Because you can look at any general manager, so to speak, or any group of people. This is the group that thought that trading on draft day for Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell was a great idea, and they were great ideas. And this is the same group that thought Trey Lyles should be drafted ahead of Devin Booker. <laughs> Man, I still forget that Trey Lyles was on Utah. I still like until I watched Kobe's game, Kobe's sixty-point game again. That's when I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the point being, everybody has hits and misses, and you hope that you have more hits than misses. Yeah, and really, like, no front office. Even the Spurs, uh, Spurs have a long track record of being uh, awesome but they don't do in-season trades. Like, even the Spurs are not 90 to 10 in terms of, like, the scale of of having great moves. Like, it's more so, like, 60-40 or 70-30. Yeah. And then I think there's the question of, um, you know, people have title, but, you know, uh, where does it go from there as far as, like, 
Dwayne Wade is an advisor, right? Dennis Lindsay's an advisor. Mm -hmm. But as a part owner, well, of course he's obviously an advisor. So how much does he choose to weigh in? How much impact is there when he does weigh in? Right? So there's a whole lot of X factors that go beyond the title. And Wade, like, you know, I think Wade is going to have a voice no matter what just because of how close he is with Ryan and how, like, just his position now and, and actually being in Salt Lake City and being around the culture and stuff. And, um, but I don't, you know, it, it's always tricky because, like, he has zero front office ex- experience. And I'm not saying, like, he's in the front office necessarily and having those talks and having those decisions. But, um, you know, it is, it is, it, 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 it does feel weird when you have such a renowned veteran, renowned, like, a Hall of Fame legend there, then you don't, you don't necessarily, like, want to lean on him fully because he does he doesn't have that experience as a as a guy that can give you that type of like advice what's going down in portland really has me intrigued because where do they go they've got a guaranteed bona fide superstar at the top but they're sort of running in place what are your thoughts it's now it's like damage control now they have to just make sure dan uh, dan willard is is content and okay with the hire of Chelsea Billups. I know there's a lot of stuff that, you know, allegations from back in, you know, 1997 and such. And I think that, uh, I think Dame, this is just my read on it. I think he kind of like is trying to save face here um, by saying that he wasn't a part of that coaching search or, you know, he didn't give his opinions, which we know from reporting last week that he did. He did give his that give his option. So just kind of weird to see him backtrack into the whole organization, uh, have this, like, you know, damage control going on. But I, I got to tell you, he's got four years left on his contract. And if I'm the Blazers, nobody and nobody in history has ever been that talented to be on to be in that franchise, Clyde Drexler included. Like, Dame is the best Blazer ever and I'm sorry like I'm not trading you unless it's unless I get absolutely blown away by a deal so it's one of those things where if he comes to you and says he wants out I just say I love you Dame I respect you so much but uh, tough luck you're, you're here with us and, and we're not we're not sending you anywhere until we have something that we and that we particularly like from a trade package well, the length of the contract seems to give them quite a bit of power for the next two years, but uh, then the power will start shifting towards mm-hmm. him. So they need to get it right pretty quick, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they have to – things have to be cordial before – and I think it, it still could be. I think it still is. Um, things have to be good before opening night because, like, you don't want to start the season on a bad note because then that will ruin this season. Then you're down to three years, and as you <laughs> said, time the, the clock will start ticking. So um, more so than anything, it's like – Figure out if you want to have this infrastructure, this this uh, roster in place. Like, if if you want to break up CJ and Dame, like try to get a really good deal for CJ and get some more versatility in defense because they are they for the last three years, man, they have been one of the worst defenses you could ever lay your eyes on. It, it's bad, so they do need to try to get some defensive versatility in there. Shane, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Thanks. Have a good one, man. There's Shane Young from Forbes. When we come back, college football, the Utes landing a couple of high-profile quarterbacks from California. We're talking recruiting with Brandon Huffman from 24-7 Sports next. The playoffs may be over for the Utah Jazz, but the season never ends on the Zone Sports Network from the NBA Draft. 
to free agency and on to the summer league. The Zone will be with the Jazz every step of the way as the Jazz front office builds for the future. Your exclusive home of Utah Jazz basketball is right here on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're brought to you in part by Zero Res. When you get the carpet you tile clean, it's never just clean, it's Zero Res clean. Don't have it any other way. Just $33 per room. You deserve the best. You deserve Zero Res. Schedule with Zero Res today. Call them at 801-288-9376 or schedule online by searching for Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. We're joined now by Brandon Huffman. He's joined us before to talk college football recruiting. He's a national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. So, the Utes, they've had good teams. The passing game has been the part of the team that has usually been pointed at as the, the group that came up just short of whatever they were trying to do, whether it was in the days when they were 5-7 and seven trying to get bowl eligible, the days when they had 8 or 9 wins trying to get the conference title game, or now they've been to the conference title game twice but haven't won the conference and gone to the Rose Bowl or the playoff. So with Nate Johnson, Brandon Rose, the commitments from them, is Utah hitting a new level of quarterback play? I think they are. I think they are. And I think you look at, you know, uh, Brandon Rose as being more that traditional dropback pocket passer Nate Johnson is developing as a passer, but that's not to say he's not a good passer already. He's just a 10-5 guy. He's the fastest quarterback probably in the United States. So you're getting him knowing his legs are a weapon, but the way he has progressed from his sophomore to junior year as a passer and just the continued development there, I think they're going to end up with two really outstanding passers. They just also get a guy who can absolutely fly in Nate Johnson, but they're really checking every box what you need in your quarterback, and now they get two of them in the same class, which is you know almost uncommon nowadays. So for years, Utah had the perception, and maybe it still exists actually. You know they're going to run, and if they don't get a first down, they're going to punt and play great defense, and that's going to be the formula to win. So that wasn't necessarily attractive to hotshot recruits, and everybody thinks they want to play in the NFL. And if you want to be a quarterback and play in the NFL, you got to throw for uh, all these thousands of yards and all that stuff. Is that perception of the Utes changing? I think so. I think so. I think when you know. Whenever you're recruiting an elite recruit, too, you've got to convince them and compel them. Like, hey, some of what we're doing is because we're limited at this position. You can be the guy that changes those limitations. So if we're not a team that's known for as much of our air assault, known much for our passing, you go after a guy who can pass and say, listen, this is what we want to do conceptually, but this is what we've been limited to be able to do because of the resources we have. If you come, you allow us to expand our playbook. You allow us to expand our offense. And so I think if there were any questions about, you know, Utah not being able to expand on what they're able to do, they now have the pieces in place to expand that passing game, to utilize more of the aerosol. I mean, granted, they're still going to want to win by running the ball. But you look at teams, you look at the NFL, you look at college teams, you look at probably the most prominent college team is, is Alabama and Nick Saban. It wasn't until about the mid-2010s where Nick Saban realized we have to actually include the forward pass. We can no longer go off of game managers and Asia McCarron turning around and handing it off to one of our 15 running backs. 
we got to start checking the rock. And I think that, you know, Utah's seen just how close they've been to tasting, you know, all the riches of the playoffs, to tasting the riches of the Pac-12 title. And maybe it's just one more dimension, adding more of a passing assault to the offense allows that. That's going to be attractive to high school quarterbacks because every high school kid thinks I'm just that one missing piece that they need. And when you're able to show them that literally they can be and they are that missing piece, that opens up things that they're able to do on Saturdays. Do the Utes have the receivers to go with these quarterbacks? I think they do. But I also think if you look at what Utah has done in the transfer portal these last couple of years, I think that too shows that if they don't have them from the high school ranks, if they don't have them from a recruiting class standpoint, that they hit the portal hard. And then that's where you start to find the talent. And I think, you know, that's a, another topic for another day and a huge big picture topic. But you look at the, their roster right now, I mean, you've got at least two Pac 12 receivers that have transferred in. Um, you've got some guys that have come in as high school recruits, but if you kind of need a, a jolt, you kind of need a, uh, you know, somebody that can come in and make an instant impact that you don't necessarily need to spend two years developing and learning the offense, you hit the portal. And I think that you're going to see more and more schools that if they're maybe deficient in one specific area, if they don't have the bodies from a youth standpoint, they'll go hit the portal and not only get older experienced vets, but guys that are going to come in and it's a business decision, business move for them. They're coming in more ready than maybe a high school freshman is because these guys really realize that this is their last opportunity. So that gets you a Theo Howard, a Manero McLean, and that gives you an opportunity to start having some more dimensions added to your passing attack. So how is the transfer portal affecting high school recruiting? Well, I'll tell you one thing. With the exception of quarterback, it's really causing high school coaches to pause just how aggressive they've been in recruiting. Now, you're still going to have some schools that they realize that they still need to make a ton of offers. They have some schools that have offered into the two, three hundreds of offers. Then you have other schools that have only maybe made 40 or 50 offers. They've been a little bit more deliberate in their approach, a little bit more picky in the type of ta- uh, the, the targets that they're going after. And so because of that, you're now going to find the portal. You're finding guys that there's no drama. There's no, you know, the, the social mediaization of the recruiting process are no longer an issue. I mean, one of the big things that when we saw guys go back to take unofficial visits in June was the reintroduction of photo shoots. Half these guys are going on visits just to have the Instagram picture. There's no interest in that school. There's no interest from that school in them, but it looks cool on social media. But when you get to a guy who's been in the portal, maybe he's been out of school for two years, he doesn't care about recruiting trips. He doesn't care about official visits. He doesn't care about seeing if he fits the town. He sees an opportunity to get up that depth chart, get on top of that depth chart quick, and it's a business decision. I think you're seeing more college coaches try to cut out the recruiting drama and just find the guys that need to be there in addition to wanting to be there. And I think you're going to see more and more schools hit the portal hard because – Hey, you're not having to develop. You're not having to wait. You're not having to redshirt. You're not having as many guys. Yeah, yeah, you're still going to lose guys to the portal, which allows you to go into the portal. But I think you're seeing a different mentality from the guys in the portal. And it's not always negative. Although there's a lot of people that like to throw shade at guys that go in the portal on Twitter. There are a lot of guys that they just want to play. And that's why they go in the portal. And there's not a clear depth chart. So they find a school where the depth chart's more manageable. So I think you're going to see schools hit the portal that much harder because those guys come with less frills and less drama and more immediate impact ability. Brandon Huffman joined us, National Recruiting 
covering national recruiting for 24-7, and I am curious what you think of what USC is doing, because if Utah is improving, but if USC is improving by leaps and bounds, Ute fans still end up frustrated. What's your take on the Trojans? Well, I think they've done a really good job of kind of recapturing their, their brand out west. But what's been fascinating, as good as their 2021 class was, it, it was really good, too. I mean, they had a lot of players from the state of California that decided to stay home, guys that they were losing. If you look at their class this year, there's a heavy influence of out-of-state guys. I mean, if you look at some of the players that they've gotten commitments from, you got Texas, you got Georgia you got players from outside the state of California. And is that because the California kids just aren't interested? Is that because they, you know, USC sees that maybe the talent in California isn't as strong? You know, there, there may be a couple of reasons. But what you are seeing is that USC is very, very worried and concerned about their national brand fading. And so they've, done, they've had a much more concerted effort to go national this year to show that that brand still is alive and kicking. The problem when you do that, when you are strong in a certain region, is that means there's a lot of guys in your backyard that you may be overlooking or may not take commitments from that ultimately and eventually come back to bite you come Saturdays in the fall when they get to college. So there may be some guys percolating out there that would have been normal USC targets in a, in a perfect scenario in a perfect year, and USC, for whatever reason, is looking past them. Those are the guys that go to other Pac-12 schools and then end up torturing programs for three or four years. So I think it's a bold strategy. I think when you're USC, I've long said this, you can go sign 90% of your class within a 30 to 40 mile radius, then go cherry pick two or three or four guys nationally from Georgia or Texas. But your home base should be California. And yet USC seems to be going on an opposite approach. They kind of are going what Oregon has been doing, where Oregon maybe gets one or two guys from the state. Obviously, demographically, the talent's not as strong in Oregon and California, but Oregon thrives off of going out of their state. I think USC doesn't need to go out of state, but this is what their kind of approach is now under Clay Helton. Let's try to go more national and show that we have that national brand, but then you tend to forget local as well. How much is this imaging and likeness and all that stuff going to affect recruiting? I think it's going to be a huge step in the direction of that's what schools are going to focus on. You know, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen the arms race from a facility standpoint. We've seen one school say, oh, you're going to build a $50 million facility. We're going to build a $51 million facility just so we can say we have the most expensive facility in a conference. Hiring strength and conditioning coaches and nutrition programs and trying to give all the bells and whistles. But now we're seeing a return to, hey, it's about what we can do to build your own brand, what we can do to market you. The strength and conditioning is nice. The, the, the nutrition program is nice. But how are we helping your brand? And, what, again, I, I go back to the social mediaization of recruiting. More and more kids are now understanding this is when you build your brand. You don't build it after you've established yourself as a 25-year-old, 30-year-old uh, NBA or NFL star. You establish it when you're 15 or 16. Your parents finally give you permission to get Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. It's not unusual to go to a seven-on-seven tournament or to a camp and see a player have his own small video crew tracking his every move. So now you're starting to see, and this is the first official visit visit cycle, uh, largely because of the pandemic pushing it back, but this is the first official visit cycle where now when you talk to a kid after his official visit, he talks about the NIL meeting, the, the, the coaches that are, are talking about it. Those are the ones that you can tell they understand it's going to be a big thing. To me, the biggest part of this is there's 25 guys in the class that are going to sign. Three to five, maybe, 
are going to be marketable. There's 20 to 22 guys that think that they're going to have the same cachet as other guys in those classes, and they're going to be greatly disappointed. So college coaches are going to have to massage a lot of egos here when they sign a kid and nobody's interested in that kid promoting their product on Instagram because nobody cares about the third string backup left tackle. You're not the quarterback. You know, Trevor Lawrence can go and get all the endorsements he wants and needs, but the backup quarterback who was the 25th pick in that or 26th guy in that class, I think the best example I've used before is if you go back and look at Alabama's 2017 class, nobody in the world and certainly nobody in Tuscaloosa would have cared about Mac Jones and wanted to have him market anything. Everybody would have wanted to go for Tua. Nobody cares about what you did after college anymore. It's what you can do when you get to school. So you're going to have situations like that where guys just aren't going to be marketable. So college coaches, not only do they have to talk about how they're going to help with the name, image, and likeness and the branding, they're going to have to massage the egos of those that there is no interest in. Or someone's going to guarantee them 50 grand because that's going to be the new shtick. Well, and, and, you know, that's been the biggest concern. But, I mean, I realize there are certain parts of the country, and I'm not naming any specific regions, where they seem to spend a high amount of money on recruiting or there's the accusations or the assumptions that large amount of bags. But as reckless as boosters can be, I just don't see them dropping 50 grand per recruit in any class. I mean, I would love to have the kind of money where I could do that. And, shoot, I wouldn't be giving it to a 17-year-old who may or may not transfer out after the first fall practice but that's the thing i think there's going to be a much more judicious process to it so even the boosters are going to say well now we can do it instead of giving 50 grand to every kid we can give 250 to this star quarterback who he's the difference between us going to a regular bowl game on new year's day to now we can play for a national championship i think you're just going to see more players the high-end players top-end players value increase that much more rather than an evening of the playing field that everybody's going to get a piece of the pie. Brandon, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and talking a little youths and a little recruiting. Anytime, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on. There's Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports, talking a little college football. Back to the NBA with Eric Walden from the Salt Lake Tribune on the changes with the Jazz. We'll do that next. Stay with us. The playoffs may be over for the Utah Jazz, but the season never ends on the Zone Sports Network. From the NBA draft to free agency and on to the summer league, the Zone will be with the Jazz every step of the way as the Jazz front office builds for the future. Your exclusive home of Utah Jazz basketball is right here on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're joined now by Eric Walden, jazz writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. He joins us on the Smart Rain guest line. It's no secret, Utah's in an extreme drought. That's why Smart Rain is a solution for any commercial property concerned about water consumption while managing irrigation. Find out more at smartrain.net. Eric, good morning. How's it going, guys? Good. Did your Sunday night get turned a little upside down real quickly? Yeah, a little bit. You know, here I was looking forward to a relatively quiet off season for, you know, a few days. And then, man, these jazz just won't let me have a night off, you know? Yeah, just for a few days, I understand what you're saying. So what was your initial reaction? Not surprised. Um, You know, we've been kind of hearing some rumblings that uh, some some changes were 
potentially a foot in the, in the jazz front office and um, that Dennis was, was going to be the odd man out, as it were. So, um, yeah, not surprised at all. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the timing took me back. I wasn't expecting it to, to come out on a Sunday evening. But, um, yeah, you know, like, like I said, those of us who cover the team have been kind of hearing some rumblings and we've been trying to confirm them and haven't got there yet. And so um, it, it, it seemed like after, you know, this elimination against the Clippers happened and, and kind of the, the bad feelings that took place after that, that, you know, some level of change was inevitable. And this was, uh, this was the, how it manifested itself. So to draw a line from this to the big picture that Jazz fans really care about, how will this impact more playoff wins happening or not happening? Well, so it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, you know, I, I think I think this isn't the end. You know, I think there are more changes that are going to be coming uh, over the next few days. I think we're going to see some other shifts in the front office. Um, I do think that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, okay, does Danny Ainge now come in? Does he take in? Does he take on a big role? I'm hearing that Justin Zanuck is unquestionably the guy who's going to run the show. And if Danny Ainge or, or anyone else come along, uh, they'll be answering to him. Um, I guess, you know, even even with him uh, having been in the Jazz organization for a number of years now, you know, it, it, it was a situation where Dennis pretty much always had kind of final say on things. And, you know, they did. I, I was listening to you guys interview Shane Young earlier, and, and to his point, you know, there is, while there is this perception that it's, you know, that, that such front office decisions are kind of unilaterally made by the guy in charge, and um, that's not the case. You know, it is always a team of guys, and the Jazz have had a very experienced team of guys. Um, you know, ultimately, if there's if there's disagreement or dissent, it comes down to one guy to pull the trigger on it, and that's been Dennis. And now we'll see that be Justin Zanuck, and, uh, you know, I expect he'll have slightly different philosophies on where to go personnel-wise than Dennis did. So you'd have to think that with Jay-Z's experience that the franchise is in good hands as far as that goes when they start making decisions. How much do you think that the new ownership is going to be involved? Because we saw a track record, particularly after Larry Miller passed, as what Gail Miller was going to do, and I guess theoretically anyway, that could change. There could be a change in philosophy there. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, we'll see... You know, it's an interesting point, right? Like we, we someone asked Dennis about uh, the, the influence of Ryan Smith when the Jazz were doing kind of their day after exit interviews with the media, you know, and and he uh, he, he spoke words that turned out to be kind of prophetic, you know. Um, he mentioned that you know regime change is part of the deal with the NBA, and that as Ryan Smith got a little more comfortable and then acclimated to the situation, that um, he would start to take the franchise in a direction that that he saw fit. And yeah, you know this is this is the first domino falling from that. Um, I do expect we're going to see some other changes coming in the front office to that point. In terms of you know him dictating like hey, I want this player, I want that player. I don't know that that will be the case. I think I think his influence comes more in the fact of these are the people who I trust to kind of 
be the decision makers and and to be the the voices who you know are, are on that uh, committee of people making making those choices. So um, yeah, I think that's where his real influence will come. You know, in terms of does he bring in Danny Ainge? Does he bring in Saint Battier? Does he you know? Name personnel guy X, Y, or Z. I think that's where you're going to see Ryan Smith's influence uh, more come into play. People might be a little surprised by the name Shane Battier, but that is not the first time I've heard it. You've obviously heard it. You wouldn't be throwing it out there. Um, why do you think that, and what what would the benefits be? Well, so Shane Battier has been uh, in, in the Miami Heat's front office for the last few seasons, and he just recently left his position there, so he's a quote-unquote free agent. I don't know uh, at this moment specifically what his interest is. Um, You know, I've heard some conflicting things about whether or not he'd want to come to Utah or or whether he's chasing some position out of the league entirely. Um, But, you know, he's considered a smart guy. He's considered, you know, a knowledgeable personnel guy. Um, you know, he obviously uh, was was a successful right-hand man to Pat Riley and down with the Heat in Miami. So, you know, it, it's a name that I've heard linked with them, just like we've heard Danny Ainge linked with them. How much, you know, uh, of that is smoke versus fire, I don't know at this point. But, um, again, I'm, I'm hearing that, that Dennis is not going to be the only – casualty of, of this change and so you know with some people set to leave or or have their roles changed you know that opens up some spots for other people to come in what's your good instinct on mike conley i think probably they find a way to bring him back um just because they absolutely need him back you know, with with Rudy's contract kicking in and, and Donovan's contract kicking in, they're going to be up against it salary cap-wise. And if they lose Mike, they absolutely cannot replace him with, with a like talent, um, you know, with anyone who's making any kind of significant money. So, you know, that said, I feel like, you know, th- there's got to be a middle ground sound. Um, obviously, he, you can't bring him back at the number that he made on his last contract uh, just because that would be crazy and, and the penalties that you'd be paying to the league for being that far over the cap uh, would be astronomical. But, you know, between their need for him and the fact that they're that much better with him and the fact that, you know, he's he's put it out there that he and his wife like it in Utah, I think those are all factors that, that play well into, uh, you know, the possibility of him returning. Now, Obviously, he, he played it a little cooler when we spoke to him the day after the season. And, you know, that, that's to be expected to some degree. You don't necessarily want to, if you're in his situation, come right out and say, I'm absolutely, definitely, 100% returning to Utah because, you know, that, that gives him no leverage. But um, I think in the end, there, there's probably a way to make it work that makes both sides happy. So without making people's heads spin with a bunch of math and a bunch of uh, salary cap and luxury tax uh, explanations, you know, as we try to figure out what kind of owner Ryan Smith is going to be, if they bring him back, even if he's, I don't know, 15 million, 20 million, I've heard all kinds of numbers thrown out there, the number for Ryan would be significantly bigger because of the luxury tax. So if they do bring him back, I guess that tells Jazz fans that uh, Ryan is willing to write really big checks. 
right? I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It's like we'd be looking at a guy who in his first two seasons of ownership uh, enabled the team to be a, a tax-spending team both years. And, you know, nothing against the Millers. They had a certain way of doing business, and, and you know, that happened occasionally under them. But I don't recall a time that it ever happened two years in a row, and, and certainly not to the degree that we'd be looking at this year if they bring Mike Conley back. That's, yeah, I mean, without getting into the specific numbers, as you mentioned, they'd be looking at paying a hefty, a hefty bill to the league for being so far over the cap. So, um, and I mean, as it was this year, they were one of the top, I want to say, five or six spending teams in the league already at this passing. So he certainly would be uh, putting his money where his debit card is. In terms of personnel, did the Clippers expose something to the Jazz that they need to correct as far as going into next season goes? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, I think the Jazz took an approach of we are going to do these couple of very specific things and we are going to be so good at them that, you know, it won't matter what you throw at us. And we saw the Clippers, you know, exploit that to a, to a degree. Um, you know, the Jazz got it done all season long with having uh, Rudy Gobert in the middle and then, and then surrounding him with four awesome shooters. Well, how do you beat four awesome shooters? You put five awesome shooters out there. Um, and then, you know, just the fact that all season long, the one defensive issue that the Jazz, they didn't consistently have problems with it, but it was it was the most consistent scheme in terms of throwing, you know, a monkey wrench into their scheme, and that was having uh, five switchable guys. So I think, you know, the fallout from that is is – you're going to see the Jazz perhaps try to get a little more flexible. You know, um, ideally, you'd like one or two extra wings who are, you know, between six seven and, and six ten, and who are capable of guarding multiple positions. You would like a guy who's capable of changing the dynamic at the five spot. You know, like like Nick Batum did for the Clippers. Uh, just in terms of being able to space and spread the floor, in terms of being able to hit from deep, and, and again, in terms of being able to guard a smaller guy out on the perimeter. Um, do I think that Rudy Gobert has got a really bad rap as a result of that series? Yeah, I do. He still is clearly one of the best defensive players in the league, maybe one of the best defensive players in the history of the league. Um, but, you know, he got put into a bad position of – having to pick his poison you know everyone got on him about oh man terrence Mann scored 30 points on rudy gobert well yeah you know um not to say that rudy was perfect but when he's having to choose between you know paul george or reggie jackson getting around a hobbled donovan and, and mike conley and having a clear path to the rim for a layup versus you know taking his chances with Terrence Mann of all people, you know, uh, being able to consistently knock down threes, he made the choice that I think most teams would make in that situation. Um, and, and it just happened to bite them this time. Uh, that said, you know, that, that sure seems like an opportunity for this team to kind of address that, you know, and, and opposed to having three classic-style, old-school throwback big men in Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, and Udoka Azubuki, 
you know, this seems like an opportunity to add someone in, in the vein of Nick Batum, who's smaller, more mobile, and has some shooting touch. So, yeah, versatility is, is the, uh, the key word for the Jazz this summer. The thing is, and I get why you want a Nicholas Batum type, if, if not him specifically, when Rudy was recruiting him a year ago. Um, and I, I get that, but that only works if the other four guys can stay in front of their guy. And I know Donovan was hurt, but, you know, okay, the other three guys stay in front of their guy. If you get the, the fifth shooter, that doesn't solve your defensive issues unless the other guys are defending better. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is uh... – that's that's absolutely true. Their perimeter defense really was not uh, operating at peak functionality against the Clippers, <laughs> and part of that is that you know you had Donovan was hobbled and you had Mike Conley who was hobbled. Part of it also is just that they're a naturally small backcourt to begin with, um, and you know you saw with the Clippers having all those guys in there with the long arms. So yeah, they certainly could stand to upgrade in that area, you know, and this is, this is the problem with the NBA, right? Like there's so many good teams and good players that all it takes is, is one bad matchup for your season to fall apart. So um, I think really what the Jazz have learned from this is, um, you know, we saw the back third of their roster really kind of devoted to either young guy, really young guys who they hoped to develop, who they hoped would kind of come through and, and turn into more and a few veterans who were like uh, very specific specialists, you know, like Ersan Ilyasova and, who I think maybe they hoped would be that small ball five, but he just, his own perimeter, uh, you know, his, his own mobility is so limited at this point that it wasn't going to work. And then, you know, a specialist like Matt Thomas, I think what you're going to see them try to do this year is take some of those, you know, 11 through 15 spots and and hopefully, you know, add a bit more depth with guys capable of defending on the perimeter, add a bit more depth of guys who are, you know, switchable defenders, add a bit more depth of guys who can fill that small ball center role. So we see that there are definite needs on this team. And, you know, maybe they are limited to only specific matchups throughout the league. Because, I mean, we certainly didn't see anyone attack the Jazz with as much success with a small ball switchable lineup as the Clippers did, right? But, uh, you know, Mike Conley brought this up in his exit interview. Like, this is this is what you have to do in the NBA. You have to have – this is why depth matters, so that you can have guys like that that you can throw out and match a specific situation. So, Eric, you know, Ryan Smith isn't the only new boss in town. You got a new boss at, at, uh, at the Tribune. Are, are you nervous? Oh, that Aaron Falk guy, he's, uh, as anyone who's ever met Aaron knows, he is an extremely scary and volatile guy. Um, (laughs) You know, I personally would have rather worked for someone who's a little more calm and and, and collected and and with a, you know, non-plus demeanor, but that's just me. Uh, I guess I'm just going to have to make do with this guy who's ranting and raving and raging all the time, but... um, and for those who obviously don't know Aaron, I'm, I'm, you know, being sarcastic and smart ass like my MO is. Aaron's an awesome guy. Um, the only nervousness I have is that I've worked under Joe Baird, uh, the outgoing sports editor, for a lot of years, for well over a decade. 
and I love Joe, and I'm very used to working with Joe. And change is hard for everybody, right? But yeah. that said, I know Aaron, and I know what he's about, and I'm excited to see what he brings to the table. And I think uh, our readers of the Solid Tribune are going to be happy with the changes that uh, they see coming from us going forward. Because I'm a little nervous what's going to happen when they replace DJ as my partner. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know something that DJ doesn't? No, 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 not at all. (laughs) Just teeing me up again. Welcome to my world, Eric. Random bomb to be dropping in that moment. (laughs) Nothing random about it. (laughs) He was locked in on that for a while. All right, we'll let you go from this uncomfortableness now, and you can just uh, take off and do your own thing, Eric. Yeah, unfortunately, once you've been exposed to some PK uncomfortableness, it kind of lingers with you for a while. So, um, <laughs> it does. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna throw myself into some work, and we'll see if we can. Uh, we'll see if we can get that rinsed away ASAP. There's Eric Walden from the Salt Lake Tribune, beat writer covering the Utah Jazz. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines next on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone.